Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 63, the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Well, we begin chapter 18 last week, chapter 18 of uh, the book of Matthew, and, and, and uh, immediately the topic became humility. Now, it is that humility is to be perhaps the chief virtue for anyone hoping to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, verses 1 through 14 are essentially an examination of godly qualities that the Lord expects to exist within the body of believers. Um, some are expressed positively, some negatively. That is, just as with the Law of Moses, there are some do's and there are some don'ts. And at first, there is this explanation with encouragement. But in verse 6, it very quickly turns to a warning that includes a penalty. When we back away and we see this from the far view, we can discern that if we adopt the mindset that Yeshua is prescribing for us, then we're going to avoid that inner urge to judge others too harshly or too quickly. So when we get to verse 10, we learn that ironically, one of the most loving and charitable things that we as believers can do for the brother or sister that has sinned against us is to confront them with their sin. Also to treat he or she in a way that acknowledges their continuing value to God. And this part of the teaching of Christ prepares us for what comes next, starting in verse 15, which is about how we are to deal with a member of the community, the believing community, that has sinned and, and failed and to do so justly and forthrightly in the manner that God would have us. So perhaps an at times overlooked background of Matthew chapter 18 is that it is really about how a community, a congregation of Jesus' followers is to think and to behave. The idea is no man is an island unto himself. If we as individuals trust in Yeshua, then we automatically belong to multiple levels of community, beginning with our local fellowship and extending to the entire worldwide body of believers. So never are we to isolate ourselves from the world, from fellowship, but rather we are to engage both of them. We are simply not allowed to flee from our relationships, our obligations as members of the Kingdom of Heaven, nor from our sins and our transgressions. And all of this is to be driven by the quality of sincere humility that makes the good of the many above what is good for us individually. So to carry out 
Yeshua's command to love our fellow man as much as we love ourselves is taken from Leviticus 19.18. Then we must humble ourselves as is natural for a little child, for not, but not so much. It may not be natural as an adult. What does this look like as it plays out? It looks like Christ's life. We are to be in imitation of His. And knowing what this look like looks like represents one of the fa- primary reasons that the Father sent Yeshua to us. Talking about emulating the invisible God in heaven is great in theory. But how does this transpire on a human level among people living on a deeply flawed planet Earth? The Law of Moses sets down a few hundred case examples. Yeshua fleshes it out as our model. Let's reread a portion of Matthew chapter 18. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that moment, the Talmudim, that's the disciples, came to Yeshua and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called called a child to him, stood him among them, and said, Yes, I tell you, that unless you change and become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So the greatest in the kingdom is whoever makes himself as humble as this child. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever ensnares one of these little ones who trusts me, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the open sea. Woe to the world because of snares, for there must be be snares, but woe to the person who sets the snare. So if your hand or foot becomes a snare for you, cut it off, throw it away. Better that you should be maimed or crippled and obtain eternal life than to keep both hands or both feet and be thrown into everlasting fire. And if your eye is a snare for you, gouge it out, fling it away. Better that you should be one-eyed and obtain eternal life and keep both eyes and be thrown into the fire of Gehenom. See that you never despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, their angels in heaven are continually seeing the face of my Father in heaven. What's your opinion? What will somebody do who has a hundred sheep, one of them wanders away? Won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillsides and go off to find the stray? And if he happens to find it, yes, I tell you, he is happier over it than over the ninety-nine that never strayed. Thus your Father in heaven does not want even one of these little ones to be lost. Yeshua begins a discourse that is in response to a wholly inappropriate question from his disciples. Which of the twelve disciples was the one to speak it? We're not told, but the idea is that this was a broad discussion that had been going on for some time. Mark 9 characterizes this discussion as an argument. 
The question involved rank and status, that is, which of the twelve disciples was the highest in rank and therefore the greatest in status? Now, although I can't prove it, it seems to follow that this argument was precipitated by Jesus singling Peter out as the rock, out of which the assembly of believers shall be cut. So it was a concern among the disciples about who should be considered the greatest in the leadership rank in the kingdom of heaven. And so Yeshua pointed to some little children nearby as a means to answer by means of an object lesson. So he embraces one of the children, says the disciples should be like them, in the sense of being humble as opposed to focusing on issues of personal status. Now I want to emphasize, it is the noticeable humble quality of a child, a small child that is to be emulated, nothing else. The adult roles and and uh, uh, rather they were not to discard their adult roles and put little children on the same level as them. Nor were there these little children thought to be founts of, of wisdom or, or spiritual knowledge. Thus says Yeshua, the greatest in the society of the kingdom of heaven will be those who display the greatest amount of humility, as seen in small children. Now it's important, especially in the modern Western world, to think of the small children in Yeshua's illustration in terms of how they were viewed in the first century in Jewish society, or all context for understanding our proper response to this instruction gets lost. In that era, little children were to be seen and not heard. They had very little status, even within their own families, and of this they were acutely aware. It's not that they were disposable, or that they weren't loved or cared for, or seen of as less uh, seen as having less worth to God, but they definitely were seen as having less practical value to the economy of the family. They produced far less work than their older siblings or their parents, and they had no wisdom to offer. Families then were not designed to cater to every, every need and whim of small children. Still little children were vulnerable, and they were easily led, so they needed protection. Now, needless to say, that is somewhat different than children are viewed in the Western world today, where children are often seen as of equal importance and value as adults. In fact, haven't we all heard the constant refrain in our time that children are so valuable that we must put them above all other concerns and give them the best we have to offer, and in so many ways they rule the roost. Whatever they want to be given to them at times before they even know they want it, or we may harm their precious little psyches forever. Little children today, therefore, don't necessarily reflect the quality of selfless humility 
of first century Jewish children as Yeshua was using to teach His disciples. Now at first, Jesus is talking about literal little children, but as He often does, He begins to morph the object of a lesson into something deeper than what is immediately apparent. The Jewish religious leadership especially did so regularly, and such a procedure later gained some labels for just how far an object lesson might transform into something deeper or even become mysterious. So the Peshat level that Jesus was speaking, the simplest, most literal level of His message, was to say that God loves and He values little children, both from their human physical aspect and from their spiritual aspect, and whomever would think to harm these innocent little ones from either aspect, they would be judged for it. But as his discourse continues, the remez level of his teaching, the hint of something deeper emerges. Yeshua says in Matthew 18.5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So clearly the identification of the child with Jesus becomes part of the equation, as does the believing person that welcomes even a small child into the fold. So now we have to be alert that the term little one or little child takes on a deeper meaning as a person of any age that is new to trust in Christ, as well as at the same time keeping the meaning of literal little children. Now this concept is very difficult for most Christian Bible commentators and perhaps most Bible students to process because they see such matters from an either-or perspective. That is, Yeshua's statement can only mean literal little children or can mean only all new believers. But when we put on a mindset of first century Jews, and this would have been Yeshua's mindset, then such a stark choice disappears. Meanings of profound, even inspired words can be comfortably taken on multiple levels. So what this amounts to is that little children that are drawn to Jesus can be seen as His legitimate followers just as much as adults of the age of accountability can. But for new believers of all ages, just like the little children, they have such little knowledge, such little experience, that they can be rather easily misled. Or they can have their hopes and trust dashed, either accidentally or on, on, or on purpose, effortlessly. effortlessly. Thus, great care must be taken of new believers, sometimes in Christianese, called baby Christians, especially by the leadership. You know, new believers must, like small children, be protected, but they must also be educated. One of the reasons in the West that it is a legal requirement for children to go to school is the overriding need for education so that they can 
mature and operate successfully in a complex society. If they should not be educated or they are improperly educated, then they will not mature or thrive as they should. It operates exactly the same way for a new believer. A new believer needs to immediately begin an education program, immediately. The most basic trust in Yeshua that may amount to a little more than being attracted to Him might be sufficient to get one's toe in the door to the Kingdom of Heaven, but maturation is expected. Or as the book of Hebrews puts it, in Hebrews 5.12, For although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the very first principles of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. All of this to say that this is the context for interpreting this passage of Matthew chapter 18. So what comes next is all important. In verse 6, it is not just that new believers and little children who are drawn to Christ are to be treated humbly and with care. But Yeshua uses very strong language to warn those who would, for whatever their motivation, cause these vulnerable ones to stumble. He then declares woe to the one who sets a snare to cause that stumble. To emphasize his point, he urges that anyone who seems to see these little ones, again, literal little children or could be new believers, as easy prey to lord over in an unhealthy way, take whatever drastic action then is needed to avoid it. So Yeshua then turns the tables by saying that those who are thinking to set snares for the little ones are actually setting snares for themselves. Thus, if what a snare setter sees with his eyes is the impetus for determining to set a snare for the little ones, it's better to rid oneself of that eye that causes it. The same holds for the foot. See, because the foot represents no longer just the thought, but now the action itself. Now, I want to be clear, this is an expression. By no means is Jesus suggesting that anyone mutilate themselves so that they are not snare-setters. It is simply strong language to make his point. Because the penalty for failing to heed this warning is so severe. Matthew 18.8 says, Better that you should be maimed or crippled than obtain eternal life, then keep both hands and both feet and be thrown into an everlasting fire. Now from the far view, this is about those who would cause scandals to the believing community, especially if those scandals are taking advantage of people of only small faith or immature faith, who are naive, they're unguarded, and of children who are too innocent and helpless to protect themselves. The punishment for doing something that Christ regards as despicable and is therefore disqualifying one from the Kingdom of Heaven is, that, is for that snare-setter to be thrown into Gehenom. Now Gehenom 
is the valley of Hinnom in Jerusalem that was used as the city garbage dump. Fires burned there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Animal carcasses, even body parts of humans were thrown into it. Everything that nobody wanted anymore wound up in Gay Hinnom. The fire stunk so bad that sulfur was thrown onto it to try and somewhat mask those wretched odors. So the image is of what Christianity would call hell. There could be no worse fate to be thrown into that burning trash heap. Now the warning of the most gruesome push punishment imaginable is followed up with in verse 10, See that you never despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven are continually seeing the face of my Father in heaven. This is a really intriguing statement. Yeshua seems to be saying that these little ones have guardian angels in heaven. And in fact, the majority of Christianity has taken it to mean just that and made it part of Christian church doctrine concerning angels. Now, I, I find that hard to argue against. Further, some ancient Jewish sources indicate more or less the same belief about angels that go so far as to say that each person gets his own personal angel. Psalm 91 says in verses 10 and 11, No disaster will happen to you, no calamity will come near your tent, for he will order his angels to care for you and guard you wherever you go. The Targum of Jacob 2 verse 5 says, I am the angel who has been walking with you and guarding you from your infancy. Philo comments as much. The Book of Jubilees 35.17, the Targum of Job 43.10. A number of other extra-biblical Jewish works confirm the Jewish belief that either there are many guardian angels that help people as needed or that each person is assigned their own individual angel. I'll let you be the judge about just how to take that meaning. However, unless what Yeshua uttered about little ones and their angels is merely an allegorical expression, unlikely, then God on earth, Yeshua, confirms that as believers we have angels watching over us because that's the full-time job of this particular group of angels. But even more, these angels are allowed to be in God's very presence. Now when a Jew speaks of the face of God or the face of a person, it means God's or that person's presence. I want to repeat, as believers, we have angels watching over us. Isn't that comforting? Yeshua's words seem to be saying that even the little ones, children and new believers, they're no exception. They too have been given guardian angels. So it's not like at some point after a time a believer finally earns a guardian angel, you know, like a merit badge. A believer at any point in our walk with Jesus is assigned an angel. So no one should have any pride about having an angel look out for them. We all do. Yet is Jesus saying that worshiping Jews who do not trust in Christ 
do not have a guardian angel. In full disclosure and absolute certainty, I can tell you, I don't know. Now, after this statement, some ancient Greek manuscripts, some, add a verse 11, others don't. Verse 11, when it's included, says, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. We find that same sentence word for word in all Greek manuscripts of Luke 19.10. So it's pretty clear that some later Christian editor thought that adding it to Matthew 18 brought some needed point of clarification or maybe a, a more smooth segue from verse 10 to verse 12. It certainly doesn't change the meaning of this passage in any way. Now Christ's question to open verse 12, what do you think, is used to get his disciples to pause and reflect. He asks a question that on the surface is simply rhetorical. That is, he expects full agreement with his premise. He must have determined that by now, because of all the disciples have been taught by him and watched him in action, that it was time for them to begin to use their reservoir of knowledge and experience to draw some conclusions on their own. It's a question from Yeshua that most folks who have been believers for any length of time have heard, and it is. If a person owned a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away and got lost, would you leave the other 99 to go find it? Now, a modern person in the risk-averse West of the 21st century might say, and if they were honest, they would say, goodness no! Why would I put 99 sheep at risk for the sake of one who certainly didn't wander away by accident, it meant to. What we have to do is to keep the sight of the core of the matter in mind. It is still all about the little ones. So we have to keep as our context that the issue is what happens to a little one a child or a new believer who strays. Thus, the stray sheep is a metaphor for a little one. This is also means to say that we have to read this statement as inferring that the 99 sheep were mature enough, sufficiently wise, not to stray, and so it enables now the shepherd that watches over them to leave them for a short time and to go off and find that one immature, unwise sheep. So even though often this story is thought to include the element of risking the well-being of the other 99 to go rescue the one, we soon find out this is not the point at all, nor is risk to the 99 even contemplated. Verse 13 says, And if he happens to find it, yes, I tell you he is happier over it, than over the 99 that never strayed. The point is the joy. It's the joy over the one that was recovered, not about risk to the other 99 that were stable. Think about it this way. 
you and your wife, perhaps another adult couple, bring your five-year-old nephew to Disney World. And as you're walking and you're talking and you're taking in all the sights, you suddenly realize the child's missing. What would you do? Well, you'd leave the adults who are mature and wise enough to care for themselves and you'd go find that child. And after searching for nearly an hour, you finally find him afraid and crying but safe and sound. See, your relief and joy is overwhelming. There was no thought of risk to the three you left behind to search to find the one. Now, the illustration and comparison of sheep to God's people and of shepherds to the leadership of the people which Christ used wasn't invented by him from thin air. In fact, Yeshua must have had Ezekiel in mind, especially because Ezekiel was one of the prophets that spoke extensively about the latter days and the end times. And Yeshua was quite self-aware of who he was, and that his advent signaled the time of the first of two latter days. I want to pause here for a moment, just for a moment, to remind us all that Jesus was a human being and his mind operated like a human being, the perfect ideal human being. Therefore, he regularly spoke using a well-worn Jewish cultural expression. He employed the literary norms for his day, such as parables. He used illustrations of daily life and their familiar surroundings to help explain spiritual matters and especially what the kingdom of heaven is like. He had an unparalleled knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, what Christianity calls the Old Testament. He used all these things in his earthly ministry, so it should come as no surprise he would mimic the words that his father gave to his prophet Ezekiel, words that many, if not most, Jews had heard at one time in their lives. So, let's take a few minutes to hear Ezekiel to help put Yeshua's words into an even greater context. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 34. Okay, we're going to read Ezekiel chapter 34, all of it. The word of Adonai came to me, human being, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, tell them, the shepherds, that Adonai Elohim says this, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the choice meat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the best of the herd, but you don't feed the sheep. You don't strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bandage the broken, bring back the outcasts, or seek the lost. On the contrary, you tyrannize them with crushing force. So they were scattered without a shepherd. They became food for every wild animal. They were scattered. My sheep wandered around aimlessly on every mountain and hill. Yes, my sheep were scattered all over the land, with no one to search for them or look after them. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of Adonai. As I live, Adonai Elohim swears, because my sheep have become prey, my sheep have become food for every wild animal, since there was no shepherd, since my shepherds didn't look for my sheep, Instead, my shepherds fed themselves, but not my sheep. Therefore, shepherds hear the word of Adonai. Adonai Elohim says, I am against the shepherds. I demand that they hand my sheep back to me. 
I will not allow them to feed the sheep, and they won't feed themselves either. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. They will be food for them no longer. For here is what Adonai Elohim says, I'm taking over. I'll search for my sheep and look after them myself. Just as a shepherd looks after his flock when he finds himself among his scattered sheep, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered when it was cloudy and dark. I will bring them back from these peoples, gather them from those countries, and return them from their own land. Then I will let them feed on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and all the livable places of the land. I will have them feed in good pastures. Their grazing ground will be on the high mountains of Israel. They will rest in good grazing grounds and feed in rich pastures on Israel, Israel's mountains. Yes, I will pasture my sheep. I will let them rest, says Adonai Elohim. I will seek the lost, bring back the outcasts, bandage the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong, I'll destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Now as for you, my flock, Adonai Elohim says, I will judge between sheep and other sheep, between rams and billy goats. Wasn't it enough for you to feed on the best pasture and drink from the clearest water? Did you have to trample the rest of the pasture and foul the remaining water with your feet? So now, my sheep, eat what you have trampled with your feet, and drink water fouled by your feet. Therefore, here is what Adonai Elohim says to them, I will judge between the fat sheep and the thin sheep, because you push them with your flanks and shoulders and butt all the weak ones with your horns, till you scatter them in every direction. Therefore, I'll save my flock. They will no longer be prey. I will judge between sheep and other sheep. I will raise up one shepherd to be in charge of them, and he will let them feed my servant David. He will pasture them and be their shepherd. I, Adonai, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, Adonai, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will rid the land of wild animals, and they will live securely in the desert and sleep in the forests. I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing. I will cause the rain to fall when it should. There will be showers of blessing. The trees in the field will bear their fruit, the soil its produce, and they will be secure in their land. Then they will know, I am Adonai, when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the power of those who turn them into slaves. No longer will they be prey for the Goyim, for the Gentiles, nor will the wild animals devour them. But they will live securely, with no one to make them afraid. I will make the productivity of their crops famous, and they will no longer be consumed by hunger in the land or bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. They will know that I, Adonai, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says Adonai Elohim. You, my sheep, the sheep in my pasture, are human beings, and I am your God, says Adonai Elohim. Pretty powerful. So hopefully you can see now where Christ is coming from in this matter of going after the one, while leaving the more responsible 99. You know, it's fascinating to me that the words of Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 31 
you are my sheep, the sheep is my pasture, the sheep in my pasture, they are human beings. And I am your God, says Adonai Elohim. Did you catch that? The sheep and the shepherd illustrations throughout these inspiring words are plainly said to be human beings, so there's no doubt as to their meaning. But also notice in Ezekiel that God is disgusted with the shepherds, the leadership, for not going after those who strayed and wandered from the flock. This doesn't necessarily mean that the strays are those who have renounced God. Rather, it means those who are immature, unwise, even foolish, and they wandered away without realizing the negative impact and the dangerous consequences of their actions. At the same time, God says He lays the earthly responsibility on the leadership to try and rescue those who strayed. But should the leadership fail? God still doesn't abandon the wandering sheep. Thus, back in Matthew 18, verse 14, we read, Thus your Father in heaven does not want even one of these little ones to be lost. Folks, between Ezekiel and Yeshua, we have been given a manual for how the believing community is to handle the matter of those members who have sinned and fallen away. But the manual continues in verse 15. Ben Witherington III astutely characterizes verses 15 through 20 as a troubleshooting handbook for recovering a fellow believer or for disciplining a follower of Christ. So let's read this short section. Open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read just verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Starting at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother commits a sin against you, go and show him his fault but privately, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won back your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you, so that every accusation can be supported by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to hear them, tell the congregation. If he refuses to listen even to the congregation, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Yes, I tell you, I tell you people that whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. To repeat, I tell you that if two of you on, here on earth agree about anything people ask, it will be for them from my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are assembled in my name, I'm there with them. None of the other gospel accounts contain this narrative, only Matthew. Now, no doubt this is because of its uniquely Jewish cultural worldview. See, it's important that we set the context for what this passage is and is not talking about. This is not talking about criminal activity. Their offenses are not only between humans. Mostly they fall into the category of shaming someone or maybe violating the unwritten Jewish etiquette or fairness code of the day. See, it's quite difficult 
for modern Westerners to wrap our minds around the matter of shame and honor. See, we only recently, in recent times, gained a rather horrifying glimpse into a societal structure of shame and honor as the rise of extremist Islam has taken the cover off of the most negative consequences of such a system that is the norm for the Middle East. As we hear of honor killings, as we hear of blood libels, beheadings, and so on. Now, I don't have time to go into the several aspects of such a societal system, but you can go to TorahClass.com, Lesson 19 of First Kings, for an overview of it and the of the other two basic societal structures that exist. See, in the West, we operate in a system of guilt and innocence that necessarily revolves around a stable system of legislated and written rights and wrongs and what happens when someone is found guilty of committing a wrong. We call this codified system of rights and wrongs laws. So when someone steals another's car or commits a battery or they lie in court or murders, we do not think in terms of someone committing a trespass against us or offending us or sinning against us. Rather, they have broken the law. And in such a, a system, there is a perpetrator and there is a victim. But the shame and honor system operates differently. In that system, there is an unwritten but thoroughly understood system of behaviors and etiquette that rides in parallel with that system's criminal law code. That is, the offense has nothing to do with what is right or wrong, but rather one person doing something to another that brings shame upon that other. A person who has been shamed, well, they'll do nearly anything to recover his honor, because shame and honor represent a fundamental social status. Ever since Mount Sinai, God has been moving Israel away from a shame and honor system and into a guilt and innocence societal system. The law of Moses is that God-given code of right and wrong. And just as importantly, it specifies what is to be done with a person that is found guilty of committing a particular wrong. And the heart of that determination is what is known in the West as lex talionis, proportional justice. Therefore, a person found guilty of stealing can't have, uh, can't have his hand cut off or, or lose his life as a punishment. But a person who takes a life can proportionately lose theirs. And there's, of course, much in between. Yet in the first century, Jews still had remnants of shame and honor embedded, in, not in their laws, but in their culture. And most of the cultures that surrounded them were either shame and honor systems or, like the Jews, had some elements of shame and honor in them. So what we find in this passage is shame and honor terms being used. And the offenses spoken of between people are generally shame and honor-like, although not exclusively. It's kind of a mix. 
Now, more specifically, this passage deals with things that the community of believers ought not to do to one another or to display a wrong behavior that is not criminally illegal, per se, but ought not to be done anyway because it violates the Father's holiness code as well as bringing shame on a brother. Thus, it's not that what is being prescribed by Christ necessarily meant to bypass the criminal justice system of the Jews, or the Romans for that matter, but rather these are the types of offenses that God finds wrong or inappropriate, and so needs to be handled within the community of Christ worshipers. Thus, because these offenses rise to a level of not achieving spiritual ideals, then they involve discipline that can rise to being banned from membership in the group or being removed from a leadership position, but not necessarily from the community, or even, in a shame and honor manner, being shunned because they refuse to confess it and to conform. So now, with that understanding, look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. It begins, Moreover, if your brother commits a sin against you. Instead of using the word sin, as is done in the complete Jewish Bible, other Bible versions might use the term trespass or offense. Again, we must think of this as the breaking of community rules, which are based on God's holiness code, as found in the Law of Moses, but not acts of criminality. At the same time, we must not take the cases that are used as examples of hypothetical matters. These things must have been quite real and were happening, and they were causing Yeshua concern. So the troubleshooting handbook Jesus speaks to his disciples, it sets down a system for dealing with these offenses, and it begins by quietly, privately confronting the offending party. It really is a one-on-one -on -one situation in hopes that it can be dealt with without causing humiliation or shame, but also remedying the matter. This necessarily means that the offender either doesn't realize what he or she has done, or they feel justified in their action, or have yet to confess it and repent. So both parties sit down and talk about it, and the offended party explains why he believes he's been offended. And now, at least so far as in this passage, the matter seems to be something that happened between two individuals, as opposed to a, a member of the be believing community who displayed a wrong attitude or a, a wrong behavior, but didn't necessarily harm a particular person or bring shame to them. See, the hope of this private confrontation is stated in the final words of verse 15. If he listens to you, you have won your brother back. That's the hope of this protocol of trying to recover a brother. The goal is reconciliation. It's not discipline and punishment. Now, we must not try to remove this narrative from the context of the sheep and the shepherds or from the little ones. They are organically connected. So the brother who feels offended is to deal with this matter privately in imitation of the shepherd and is to find and recover the offender. 
the sheep, the little ones wandered away. Now, hopefully, no further action is needed. Let me add that depending on one's personality and temperament, this isn't a terribly hard thing for the offended to do. Or it seems impossibly hard. There are those of us who can confront rather easily, and others that would rather chew their own arm off than confront another person or over an unpleasant matter. The challenge is that there really is no room given within the believing community for anyone of any temperament to avoid such a private confrontation. Now, I think part of the reason for this disregard of personality traits is that the person who won't confront, they don't just move on as it seems from the outside that they have. Rather, they tend to harbor a building resentment that no one else may know anything about. This resentment can just suddenly explode and lead to that person becoming an offender, him or herself, as he or she can no longer contain it. So it's always best to handle matters of personal offense immediately, forthrightly. Verse 16 now goes to step two. If step one, which is a private confrontation, doesn't work, then the offended is to take one or two other brothers with him and, still in private, attempt to get the offending brother to confess his offense. In other words, gentle persuasion has failed. Now the matter becomes a little more public. This system of dealing with personal offenses is, again, not something exclusive that Christ is bringing to the table. In the Talmud, Yoma 45c, we find these words. Samuel said, Whoever sins against his brother, he must say to him, I have sinned against you. If he hears, it is well. If not, let him bring others and let him appease him before them. See, so Judaism has always seemed to contain this fundamental system of handling offenses between people that revolves around private confrontation in hopes of reconciliation. But then it steps it up to bringing some witnesses to bolster the case against the offender in hopes he'll finally give in and confess. So I think we'll just stop here for today and continue unpacking this very important passage next week that still has such pertinence among the body of believers even in the 21st century.